0: We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Marcus Anthony Hunter, the author of Black City Makers. Marcus Anthony Hunter, author of Black City Makers, the subtitle of your book is How the Philadelphia Negro Changed Urban America. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yes. Uh, So the title draws directly from the classic book in 1899 by W.E.B. Du Bois, which was called The Philadelphia Negro, A Social Study. And it borrows from that title in particular because what I did in the book was to go back to the neighborhood that he studied in 1897 to 1898 and figure out what happened to it after he left. So he was there, it was a predominant black neighborhood at the time, and when he leaves, it soon after becomes not that, not the case. And so I was really curious as to what happened to it. And so when the time came around to... Uh, put a title on the work, I thought, one, the first part was the black city makers idea, the idea that black people are dramatically um, consequential in making the city. But then the other part of it is sort of an homage to Du Bois and also to the Philadelphia Negro is how they changed urban America. Well, for people who are not familiar with that book, can you Mm -hmm. talk about a little bit
0: what was in it Mm -hmm. and and what was going on in that part of Philadelphia that he looked at back then. Yeah,
1: definitely. So uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who had recently gotten his PhD from Harvard, um, had been at Wilberforce uh, University, which was a small black college out in Ohio, Wilberforce, Ohio, to be specific. And he had gotten a letter from a series of professors and interested parties out of Philadelphia, mostly out of University of Pennsylvania. And they asked him to come out and study what was then called the Negro Problem. The idea was, the Negro problem was, why is it the case that black people are uh, underemployed, unemployed, uh, living in broken families, uh, living undereducated or miseducated? So the idea was, here is this, you know, wonderful black scholar, one of very few to even have a Ph.D., let's have him come out here, live in the neighborhood for a year and write up what he finds. Um, Now, what's interesting about the book is that he's given that charge that I just described, but instead what he does is actually use it as a way to talk back to the white folks who brought them out there to say that all of the reasons that you are thinking there's a Negro problem are all really attributable to racism, enslavement, and discrimination, and not in fact some pathology about black people. What was, and it was the 7th Ward Mm -hmm. that he wrote about, and where is that? Yeah, the 7th Ward was, at the time, administratively situated between uh, about 7th and South to about 24th Street, with Pine and South being the bookends on a neighborhood. It was also predominantly white and black, and so for my part in the book, I focus on what became a distinct black neighborhood in that larger neighborhood, which I call the Black Seventh Ward, which was located between 7th and 23rd Street, Lombard to South. Do you call it the Black Seventh Ward or was it called it then? So it was called that in passing and some other names, which I mention in the book. For example, Hell's Acre was one of the more famous names of it because it was notoriously uh, dilapidated um, and people thought of it as a slum. And so they called it, you know, an acre of hell, you know, so to speak. But more... More in time, folks just sort of refer to it as the black area of the 7th Ward, the black 7th Ward. And so I just take that as the the sort of name, cultural name of the place. What was life like in that neighborhood? It was very difficult. Um, Du Bois himself, when he gets there, he notes that, you know, murder sat at his doorsteps. He lived at 7th and Lombard, 700 Lombard Street, um, which no longer exists as a residence today, but at the time was a cafeteria downstairs and a series of apartment buildings on top of it. And he said that crime and violence were everywhere at the time. It was highly dense because part of what happened was when black folks were arriving to Philadelphia, this was the major neighborhood that they could live in. So it was really like a port of entry, so to speak. So what Ellis Island is for Italian immigrants coming in the 1900s to the 1920s, the Black Seventh War was for Southern black migrants coming up north from places like Virginia, North Carolina, and Georgia. Did they find work? No, not really. So actually one uh, very important uh, number is that approximately 8.5 percent of the black population during Du Bois' time in Philadelphia were employed in the local employment sector, which led to a uh, real question of why is that the case given that they live so close to where employment is. Can you say again? 8.5 percent? 8.5 percent, yeah.
0: Were employed?
1: Mm-hmm. Gainfully employed in the local economy, yeah. So uh, Everybody
0: lived in poverty there, or were there levels of economic uh,
1: Right. So the book, uh, oh, sorry to interrupt, uh, the book uh, does a really, uh, the book by the book, I mean, uh, Philadelphia Negro by Du Bois does a great job of outlining exactly what people did for work at the time he came. And so one of them were a whole bunch of domestic workers who weren't necessarily formally a part of the employment sector. The other thing that he finds are a lot of self-employed businessmen. So one that he focuses a lot on is Andrew F. Stevens, who was a very prominent black Philadelphian and owned this catering company that was very successful at the time. So most of the major employment for black workers at the time Du Bois was in Philadelphia were waiters, butlers, janitors, And usually what happened was because where your job was, for example, a hotel or working for a rich white family somewhere, it in some ways afforded people another notion of class. So you became middle class or elite to some black people because of where your job was, not actually the type of work that you did. What was housing like? Housing was very bad. Um, And in fact, uh, in chapter three of Black City Makers, I go back to Du Bois's discussion about housing because what happens in 1936 is that a black woman, a recent widow, and her three children are killed in a tenement collapse because of this overly run-down apartment building that in many ways had been uh, forecasted for at least 30 years before it happened. So part of what happened was uh, there was an influx of black residents coming into Philadelphia like Boston, Chicago, you know, uh, New York. And what would happen is if this was the major neighborhood where people would live, the space that black people were allowed to have didn't expand when the population did. Instead, what happened was apartments that were once for one family became apartments for five families. So what you find, for example, as I detail in chapter three, is an inventory of the housing stock suggests that there are a million apartments at least of You know, no windows, you know, all of these buildings with no sanitary equipment, no bathrooms. And so people started to make makeshift bathrooms in the alleyways on the sides of these apartments, which became highly unsanitary. There was a tuberculosis outbreak that happens in the 7th Ward couple of times, actually, between 1900 and 1950. And these are all a part of the fact that it's highly dense, overpopulated. And what's also very interesting about the neighborhood is that everyone isn't poor, for example. So there are middle class blacks who are in this neighborhood who would love to live in other places, most notably in West Philadelphia, and are unable to because they're not able to get loans or mortgages. And they're finding unfriendly terrains when they explore, you know, Philadelphia outside of the Seventh Ward.
0: Uh, I want to ask you about uh, the, the black population in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. because there, there was a black population in the city going back to colonial mm-hmm. times. Was, was there any kind of uh, distinction between the old Philadelphia mm-hmm. African-Americans and the migrants,
1: mm-hmm. the ones who came in with the great migration, or did they kind of mm-hmm. mingle? That's an awesome question, because, in fact, there was. And I would say, you know, looking back, for example, at an issue like poor housing, One would think that if all of the black folks are living in this neighborhood and poor housing is a central issue, that it would likely become a consensus issue, when in fact it didn't. And why it didn't was actually because of these interracial issues. So there were people who, in a book I refer to as indigenous black Philadelphians, people who were most likely slaves here and so have been here for most all of their lives and across a series, series of generations, And those who were elite of that group called themselves Old Philadelphians, you know, so just to pick up on the cue on your question. And what happened was in 1924, they did a Negro migrant study, and they went door to door to talk with all of these folks who were coming into the city to ask them where they were from, you know, what brought them there, what age they were, did they come with family members. And so these uh, records, which are at uh, Temple's Urban Archives, which are fabulous, you see people as far away from uh, Philadelphia as Jamaica listed uh, some of the migrant study information. And after the report is written up where it issues all of these things about how the housing looks and what's going on, many of the existing black population folks, especially these old black Philadelphians, would say it's because these folks are from rural areas in the South and have no idea how to live in a city. So it's not really the housing that's a problem. It is their culture that's a problem. We just need to teach them what it means to be a black person living in the city. So these are the sorts of roadblocks that make it so that housing doesn't get the attention that it would need because there isn't even among Black people agreement about what the causes of such problems are.
0: Did the old Philadelphians kind of take the new Philadelphians under their wing, or was that so? You see
1: a lot of you see a lot of tension, you know, and some of the other tension comes up around politics because the old Philadelphians were also almost all always Republican at the time, which I know in contemporary times people go. GOP, black people, that seems crazy. But in fact, it was the party of Lincoln and emancipation. And so people were very loyal to that party. But part of what happens is the housing issues required more than just city attention, but what many people viewed as federal intervention. And at the time, conservative leadership or the GOP more generally was not in favor of it. So part of what you see are the existing class of old black Philadelphians, staying loyal to the party of Abraham Lincoln even as the issue requires larger intervention by the government while you have this uh, younger, southern, you know, working class, poorer population coming in, not really vested in that particular loyalty and instead looking for a way to get help. And so what you see is one of the very first tensions leads to the establishment of a rivaling black democratic organization, which at the time is very radical because people thought, you know, Democrats are aligned with southern races. So why are you going to be a part of the Democratic Party? And black residents would say to other black residents, because we need the government to intervene on our behalf, because this problem is only getting worse. Did the Philadelphia city government do anything
0: uh, to, to help out the 7th Ward uh, when, in those early days, the early 20th century?
1: So what winds up happening is uh, up until 1935, there's not much movement around housing. There's a series of attempts to find sites to, you know, develop a group of people who had, uh, would look out into the city and figure out where it might be a good place to rebuild or build public housing. That doesn't get much headway until Lucy Speece and her children perish in the tenement collapse in, on December 19, 1936. She lived at uh, 517 South 15th Street, just adjacent to South Street, so between South and Cater, for folks who are familiar with South Philadelphia. And part of what happens there is that it really, in some ways, you know, sparks, you know, the fire about this because it makes the front of both the black and white newspapers. People write into both of the newspapers, black and white residents, about how awful this is. Why would this happen to this family? She didn't deserve it. She was 42 years old. Had recently lost her husband. Her children were 13 through five. They all die in this, among some other people. And what you see from there is the mayor at the time, uh, Samuel Davis Wilson, who was a Republican, He comes down and tours the site, and he decides right on the spot to arrest the landlord, who was a white man named Abraham Sampson. He charges him with seven counts of involuntary manslaughter, for which he's later convicted. He also then uh, denies him bail, and initially has him in jail, and then establishes a mayoral commission for public housing, and then later develops the PHA, the Philadelphia Housing uh, Association. And so part of what happens there is what we get out of that tragedy, that black tragedy, are all of these bureaucracies that are about public housing. And then we see a lot of efforts to compel the federal government, then led by FDR, to give funds, which they then get. And so we see from 1937, just a month after that uh, death of the Spees family, by 1942 there are three public housing buildings built in Philadelphia, two of which are targeted for Black people in particular: the Richard Allen Homes and the James Weldon Johnson Homes. Which it is not by accident they share the names of Black heroes. On top of that, just to signal, no, these are buildings for Black people. But there was a problem with the Richard Allen Homes. Yes. What was- The problem was that at the time, of course, the United States is also a part of World War II. And so we have defense workers who are a part of the war effort and they need housing. And so part of what happens is the Defense Workers Administration are supposed to house these war workers, but their work is put on hold because the PHA has precedence over local uh, development. So part of what happens is the PHA is now closely running a deficit on the money they originally had for these developments. And so they decide to do an under-the-table negotiation swap with the Defense Workers Administration to get the money they have from the federal government to trade for the Richard Allen homes. So just after the Richard Allen homes have been slated to be occupied, all of the applications are in, residents are waiting for, you know, the building, the ribbon-cutting ceremony so they they can move in, word comes down that actually the PHA has now sold, you know, under-the-table wise the property to the Defense, uh, Defense Workers Administration and it is no more. What winds up happening is black leaders at the time then write directly to President Roosevelt and say, look at what is happening. This is happening to those who are most down and out the people who have the very least. And we are also not assured that this unit will be replaced by something in the same amount of time for the same amount of people. You must do something to address this. And with that, he actually, you know, severs that deal and returns the Richard Allen homes back to its original purpose.
0: You mentioned black political leaders, Mm -hmm. and this was during the New Deal, the Mm -hmm. Roosevelt years. When did there start being somebody you could call a black political leader?
1: I would say from the very opening, so part of what um, really was a major black political organization was the Citizens Republican Club, and it became sort of like an ad hoc, you know, Uh, president of the black body in Philadelphia. And so whoever the president of that organization was was the quasi-leader of black Philadelphia. And so that organization was founded in the late 1800s and didn't really die off until about 1945 when they decided to go with Hoover as the candidate as opposed to Roosevelt. And part of what you see there is this real break-off among the Republicans there because they were trying to figure out, well, who is the Republican Party for, right? So at the same time, Philadelphians are asking themselves that question. So are black people, nationally speaking, around party relationships and loyalties. And so what you see is, you know, when you get the Citizens Republican Club, you see a leader out of that. The president of that organization is now the, the quasi-leader of Black Philadelphia. When the Citizens Democratic Club becomes very prominent, then that person becomes the quasi-leader of Black Philadelphia. Then when you get your establishment in the 1950s through the 1970s of the NAACP in Philadelphia, then you see folks like Cecil B. Moore, for example, sort of become an inheritor of that quasi leadership of Black Philadelphia until you get the formal leader of a black mayor like Wilson good
0: well going back to the the seventh ward and when um, did they have something like a ward leader who was the local political boss and did that person come from the the migrants who lived in that area or who among them mm-hmm. rose to be a politically uh, mm-hmm. powerful person in that area
1: that's a great question so um, There are two answers to it. The first answer is there was a ward leader. One of the most famous ones was Charles Seeger, who was a white Jewish man who was a representative of the entire ward, including the black folks who were in it. And part of what's interesting is later, uh, after his death in the 1920s, there is uh, what is now standing on 11th and uh, Lombard as Charles Seeger Park, um, was originally slated to be called Phyllis Wheatley Community Center. Well, when the mayor comes to speak to the people, he reveals to everyone that he is saddened by the great loss of his friend, the great representative of the 7th Ward, Charles Seeger, and says, why don't we name the park after him? And part of what you see there, and I detail in the book, is that black leaders at the time, so Major R.R. Wright is a major Republican leader at the time, he speaks back to the audience, many of whom are surprised, dismayed, and disgruntled by this revelation that it's no longer going to be Who was Phyllis Wheatley? Phyllis Wheatley is a very famous poet, black poet from out of New England, who was a slave as well and became prominent for her poetry while also being a slave. And so the idea was to give her a space in this black area of the city, some cultural space as a designation of how important she is and how important black people are to Philadelphia, Philadelphia into the country more generally. And that's lost in this moment because Major R.R. Wright, alongside several of his other Republican associates, convinced those in attendance that what we should instead focus on are trying to get Amos Scott to be the first black magistrate in Philadelphia. So part of what we see is Amos Scott gets elected as the first black magistrate of Philadelphia on the heels of having that name change. So part of what you see in the early part of the 1900s are these sort of swapping negotiations, right? So as to get black representation in local government, you might forsake other types of establishments or occasions uh, so as to get that.
0: Were there other black neighborhoods in the city at the time?
1: So there were. There were some uh, really uh, what you see are a lot of those were, which were a part of the 30th Ward, which was from the other side of South. So south of South Street, um, which remained black well until I would say maybe two years ago. Um, is uh, the 30th Ward. And then you see on the other side of City Hall, what we think of as North Philadelphia. So what is happening is on both sides of City Hall, you see prominent black populations. The one key identifying fact about the 7th Ward is that it was where the major goods and services were available for all black people in the city. So even if you didn't live there, you most often found yourself there because you either needed a barber, you attended a show, you took in a play. You know, you went into the bank, you know, all of these other goods and services that were vital to everyday life were all in that one particular neighborhood. Were any of those businesses black owned? Only a few. And in fact, in 1916, there was a big boycott by black residents across the city because of the lack of black Ownership of businesses in the area. So there was a South Street Businessmen's Association, which was basically all white men who owned the businesses along South Street. And part of what happens is uh, there are black police officers, only two in the Philadelphia Police Department at the time, and they had been assigned to the South Street area. Well, because there would be these uh, patronage, patron, uh, patronage conflicts where a black customer would be having a conflict with the white proprietor about a transaction. The black police officer would often become the mediator on site in real time, often falling in favor of the black customer. The South Street Businessmen's Association leader goes to the police uh, department, the head of the police, and asks for the police uh, department to, you know, rearrange where people's beats are. And it actually meant that the black police officers would be relocated somewhere else. That then is received very unfortunately... uh, by a lot of the uh, black residents at the time as a sign of the lack of care or concern for black residents and their needs. And so they decided in 1916, for that summer, they are not going to uh, patronize any of those businesses. And so they tried to work with the available black businesses at the time, which had limited inventory and stock. But for the three months of that summer of 1916, they boycotted those businesses just on that it's, it's, that uh, specific issue.
0: Who organized the boycott? Was it an association of some sort or was it loose?
1: So it was a a group of reverends at the churches at the time um, who really uh, had a series of meetings. The meeting was called the Indignation Meeting. It was held at Wesley AMEZ Church in the Black Seventh Ward, which still stands today on Lombard Street. And They basically had a whole bunch of different, you know, all the way from residents, all the way up to uh, top Republican leadership at the time. And it was general agreement about the fact that this was a general problem. Did it change anything, the boycott? So what it did, it didn't seem to change the fact that the police officers never returned. So they never got rearranged and put the black uh, police officers back at their beat in a black summer 4 That never happened. But what it, what did happen is that you see after that moment a real concerted effort by black residents in Philadelphia to establish a series of black enterprises. So this is where you get black banks, black theaters, black movie clubs, black social organizations, black bars, black markets, there was a real effort to try to do that because the idea was if they're not going to treat you as equal, even if your money is, then maybe you should just abandon it altogether. And that, you know, led to some mixed results, I would say.
0: Well, you write about the 1925 bank the mm-hmm. Brown and Stevens Bank. Mm-hmm. It was black owned. How, how would an African-American have put together a bank at a time like right. that?
1: Yeah. So there are two ways. The first way is just a structural issue in that Black people had money, but there were no vehicles or outlets. And so the sociologists Melvin Oliver and Thomas Shapiro refer to it as an economic detour. So when you actually have money and you're not able to use it in a way that your white counterparts are able to use it. So it provided an entrepreneurial opportunity, right? So you have Black people who are now having certain types of jobs, having a certain amount of uh, wealth, but no place to put it or deposit it. So there is that, you know, structural opportunity that they're seizing. The other thing about it, is that Andrew F. Stevens and Edward C. Brown, who are the founders of Brown and Stevens Bank, Cosmopolitan Bank, the other one, were a part of this elite class of old black Philadelphians. So Edward, I mean, Andrew Stevens, his father, was the gentleman mentioned, uh, the senior Andrew F. Stevens in Du Bois' is The Philadelphia Negro, as this very successful caterer who had in one year managed to make what would be, by our estimates, $116,000 in one year. So he had a family you know, wealth that he was able to pull on, as did Edward C. Brown. So basically what they did was use their you know family wealth to some degree to provide seed money to start it. The other point, which is very uh, important about it, is that with the bank that was not state sanctioned, which is the Brown Stevens bank, you didn't need any money really. What they needed was enough money to establish it, so they needed, you know, anywhere between five and ten thousand dollars to pay the state to authorize the establishment of it, and then after that it's just based on what deposits you get or what you put into or out of the bank. Why did the bank fail? The bank failed for a lot of reasons. Um, one, because it was overextended. I think that's the point that I really spent a lot of time talking about in the book, because of course there are um, misappropriations of funds, mishandling of funds. Um, so as I show in chapter two of the book, you see a whole bunch of the ledgers where you see, especially Edward Brown signing out a ton of cash, You know, nearly every day in some cases, sometimes multiple times in one day for God knows what. Uh, the other thing that you find is, I mean, when we think about black-owned businesses, I don't think we spend enough time thinking about the fragile relationship that is embedded in that. Basically, what it means is that a group of people who are discriminated against and marginalized are relying on the same population to make wealth. Right. So part of what we see if we think about the Great Recession of now, you are a black owned business and you're catering specifically to black people. When a mortgage crisis happens and black people more than anyone else are losing their homes and going into foreclosure, so goes your financial outlook, you know, and so what we see is that you know, interconnectedness between black entrepreneurial endeavors targeting black consumers and black consumers' uh, fragility and vulnerability to the whims of you know, the economic market.
0: What was it about that bank failure that made it such, uh, so significant that you made it such a big part of your book? I mean what are the, mm-hmm. the big lessons from mm-hmm. that
1: it, it wound up being a really big deal because it was the inheritor of, inheritor of the legacy of the Freedmen's Bank, which was established, signed into law and in, as the last real act of emancipation by Abraham Lincoln in March of 1865. He shortly thereafter is assassinated. And from 1865 to 1874, it is a bank specifically targeting freedmen, which were black men and women recently freed from slavery, for them to deposit their savings. And so by 1874, there was upwards by 2010 estimates of over $1 billion of black people's money across 34 branches in the United States. And Frederick Douglass is, unfortunately, to his dismay, he wakes up and finds out that he's the president of this organization and told that it is flush, you know, things are good. And within three months of his reign as president, he discovers that it is running huge deficits, These deficits spill out into the media, and there are a series of runs across all 34 branches of those banks. By 1881, seven years after it closes in 1874, only 62 percent of the full holdings have ever been repaid, but not 62 percent in full to all those people. So part of what happens is that is really a precursor to why you see black banks happen, right? Because the idea was, well, maybe it was because it was a white-owned and white-authorized bank let's try it on our own, right? So go, go it on your own. And so you see black entrepreneurs across cities. So there's Benga Bank in Chicago, like I said, Brown and Stevens Bank in Philadelphia, where you see all of these cities where they are great migration destinations, folks trying out banking, because you need banks as a part of a capitalist society. You need a bank. And so you see people trying that, but having much the same failure. And why it becomes so big, and the lessons I think that are really important, is that the way we see black people think about banking now, or when we read about reports about distrust, black people distrust banks so much that they quite literally go to checking, uh, you know, these uh, uh, check cash in places and they pay, you know, 4% of their money to get their money back. And people say that doesn't make any economic sense. What is that about? And it is because there is a legacy, a historical legacy of loss in these formal institutions. So not only do they fail, it then doesn't matter if it's black or white run. And then three, you never get your money back. And so what you see later are a series of practices like numbers running or policy writers, as some folks used to refer to them, becoming yet another way that people thought that they could save or amplify their wealth. Right. So in many ways, the reason why I make such a big deal or I make such a big deal out of it is that it really helps to historically inform black financial practices. Black sentiment around banking, black sentiment around the trust in the financial sector. Where is that rooted? And it was rooted in, I think, these two early banking experiments. Did successful African-American-owned banks eventually emerge? Not from what I could see. Um, and so uh, even now, right now in Los Angeles, there's a, I, I believe the name of the bank is like Broadway Federal Bank is a long standing black owned bank. But with the f- recent financial crisis, the 2008 mortgage crisis, they are you know, now being indicted by their black patrons. Many of them are you know, uh, churches where the pastors are going on television and going before their congregations to say that they've been duped by this black bank. And so I would say that's just a sign of the fact that to some degree, even if race changes, certain institutions in some ways have histories and practices that are not always favorable to minorities or poor and working class people.
0: Speaking of institutions, can you talk about a couple of them, the, the role of churches mm-hmm. and schools mm-hmm. and then kind of social organizations?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, churches were important, and I think they continue to be important, but were especially important not just because they were places of worship. And so Du Bois reminds us that though black churches are religious, they're also social institutions probably first. And so what we see is you know, when you first get to Philadelphia in the early 1900s, you join a church family as a way to learn the city. You meet some neighbors. They tell you where things are. You find out how to access certain things and how to move through the space. You might get some insights and tracks to employment, you know, these types of opportunities. So they were safe spaces for black people to share information with one another, both about things large and small, right? The other thing you see with schools, um, which was interesting at the time was the establishment of what were referred to as normal schools. So now we would think, what is a normal school, right? What does that mean? At the time, normal schools were schools that actually taught general education. There were normal schools and vocational schools. And so in Philadelphia at the time, especially for black 7th Warders, there was only one normal school that you could go to. All the other schools were trade or vocation schools that taught you how to basically go work in the domestic sector just down the street, you know. The other school was just Dunbar School, which was a normal school, taught all the general things like arithmetic, you know, reading, writing, and the the like. Um, They also, I would say, later in the book, those institutions wind up mattering because even when the population shifts, so when black people leave and they no longer are able to you know, provide the ample population to fill in these buildings, the buildings take on another meaning. So it becomes historical markers of this black life that is no longer there. So those institutions matter both in real time because they became safe spaces for black people in times where racial animus was at a high, um, but also then become cultural markers of the successes of black Philadelphians and making a way and forging a legacy in a place like Philadelphia. Can I take a minute out to ask you about yourself? Yeah. yeah. Uh, where are you from? So I am from South Philadelphia by way of Newark, New Jersey, if that makes any sense. Um, so I grew up actually in Hawthorne, which is a neighborhood that uh, is featured prominently in the book, um, spearheaded and saved by the wonderful activist Alice Lipscomb, who is no longer with us. Um, but I... And from there, and so what's interesting is when I first started thinking about a project that I wanted to do, this began as my dissertation, I I thought, hey, you know, there's this book called The Philadelphia Negro. It's the very first book about, you know... Urban Anything in America, in sociology, the very first book of American sociology, the very first book about an American city in this way, and also it happened to be about black people, you know, and black Philadelphians from a neighborhood from where I came, and I thought, why is it that we don't read this book? why is it that we study other cities more like Chicago and New York and we don't study Philadelphia because I think there are real lessons in it? And so for me, it was this combination of knowing that when I read books about Philadelphia or New York, they feel so distant from my experience being a black Philadelphian. You know, Chicago, for people who are unfamiliar, when you go to Chicago, black people own a certain amount of regional geography of the city that for me is just super overwhelming and impressive. The black area of Chicago on the south side, as is often known as the black part, um, begins at roughly 15th Street and goes all the way to Gary, Indiana, in my estimation. I means a large geography to contain one racial population. Where in Philadelphia, you get what I think of as checkerboard arrangements. So four blocks by four blocks are black. Four blocks by four blocks are Southeast Asian. Four blocks by four blocks are you know, white ethnic, Irish or Italian. This was my experience growing up and I wasn't finding that in the research. And the only place that I kept thinking was Du Bois because he was saying the same thing. The Seventh Ward is a combination of Polish, Irish, and Italian immigrants alongside the strivings of former enslaved populations like black people.
0: But does that uh, checkerboarding result in more co-mingling of the races, or did they still stay in their uh, own, within their own ethnicities?
1: I mean, what you find is that they stay exactly where they were, which I think is one of the uh, unique qualities and also ongoing mysteries about a place like Philadelphia, right? If it's not really walls being erected, physical walls. There are walls being maintained. And who is doing that? And so sometimes you find that there are people who are, you know, black who are, you know, maintaining these boundaries. And you also find that there are white residents maintaining these boundaries. One, I think, real easy example is the Grace Ferry neighborhood of, Phil- of South Philadelphia, which has long had, you know, black and white racial uh, Bad relations, just to put it nicely, so much so that the Mural Arts Project has a mural over in the Grace Ferry area that shows a black hand shaking a white hand with a dove representing peace, because it has just been so torrid over there that those places are places where you see black people in close proximity to white people, but the overlap in terms of cross pollination isn't happening, and I think that's because of a lot of things. One, what we see in a lot of history, so for example, uh, the great book, How the Irish Became White, which is about white Irish immigrants coming to Philadelphia in particular, and how what you see is the fight over labor, the competition over jobs becomes a way that animus between white Irish immigrants and black Americans remains, because people saw them as taking jobs, right? So Irish folks, when they form unions, would say, pay us better, And the employer would say, Here come some black workers who will work for what I'm paying you or less. And so it creates this, uh, you know, opposition between the two of them where people see, see, we're trying to get paid better, and y'all black people are coming in and taking our jobs and getting paid less, y'all are not helping. And so you see that planting seeds of animus that remain even at the residential level. So you don't see what you would think otherwise when you're so close to people. You would think it'd be friendly or some sort of neighborly environment when in fact it's not. And I think a lot of it has to do with the work environment and the competition thereof oh we didn't finish talking about you the book flap says you are a professor at
0: Yale but that's not up-to-date
1: yes so I was a professor at Yale for three years um, and then I just recently transitioned where I'm a professor in the sociology and African-American studies department at UCLA where'd you go to college I went to Columbia University in this great city of New York. Um, I did graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania in education. And then I did my Ph.D. work at Northwestern. Is this your first book? It's my very first book, yes. How do you get a job like being a professor at Yale? Uh, I think you wish, hope, and things happen, you know. Um, I mean, honestly, it was... Uh, I think it was about the fit. Um, The great sociologist, Elijah Anderson, who was uh, a longtime professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's been on this program. Right. Has recently transitioned to Yale and was looking for, they were looking for someone who did the sort of work that I did. And so I think those, you know, interconnections led to me winding up there in that way. Um, And he and I working together uh, very closely, so much so he writes a very nice blurb on the back of Black City Makers. Yeah. And how did you end up in UCLA? So, I wound up at UCLA because, in many ways, I was recruited to go there. Um, and so, part of what happened after the book came out, and I think one of the major contributions of the book begins and ends at the title, Black Makers." And part of why that title is important is because, in my view, um, the last, you know, let's just use the 20th century, the last 114 years, the year is 2015. So, the last 114 years of research about urban America has always, always situated black people as almost always. Is reactive or pathological, so. The, uh, the economy changes, we move from a manufacturing base to a service sector based employment. Black people, are, of course, at the forefront of losing those jobs. The research tends to look at that, but only as consequences of change, not as consequential to change. And part of what I was really invested in and what I saw in the history, what I saw in the Philadelphia Negro by Du Bois, is this idea that black people are actively engaged in shaping the city actively, I mean, just the point of staying in a place like Philadelphia, right, is a a political move of resistance to not give up, right, to do something to the city. Now we see a place like Philadelphia having an increase in its population, Why? Because those white folks who flew, or as we say, white flight to places like Westchester and King of Prussia, now think the city is the place to be. One of my major arguments and why black city makers is important is the reason why there is a city for you to return to is because black people stayed. Now, it may not be the city you hope to find, but there would be no city because many white folks just left it to die. So it did not die because black people did things. And I think when we think about urban policy, when we think about the problems of cities, we don't necessarily give homage, give respect to, deference to, listen to, the residents who stayed, the people who said, this is where I'm at. I mean, if we think about the journey black people took to get to Philadelphia, many of them walked, quite literally walked from, you know, let's just say uh, Dublin, Georgia, all the way to Philadelphia. I mean, can you imagine? And all they had was either railroad tracks or the ocean, they just followed it somewhere out of the South, you know, and in some ways discovered that the South followed them. This is a, a whole other story in the topic of my next book, Chocolate Cities. But the idea here is really, I think, much of what plagues our urban policies, why they have not worked, is because we continue to think about the people who are um, impacted by them most as only receivers of the policy, not shapers. And I think the only way to move forward and have better policy is to Accept them, understand them, and respect them in that role. Um, And also, I would say, to hear their feedback about how you do things. You know, I'm often asked now, why is urban renewal always a problem, right? Why is gentrification a problem? And part of the issue is because it never gives respect or deference to the people who were there already, right? When a neighborhood is uh, slated for revitalization, which is a new code word for urban renewal because that sounds nicer, right? Uh, When things get revitalized, there's almost never any sort of plan put in place for relocating and rehousing displaced populations. We would think, some people say, uh, as I say in the book, Cushing Dolbear, who was the head of uh, the Housing Association of the Delaware Valley during the uh, post-World War II period, she said it is a moral obligation to have a serious plan and way to house displaced people. I would like to go further and say it is a priority. Forget a moral obligation. It should be a matter of policy and principle that you do not get to build anything until you have a legitimate place to put people who are already there. And they should also have a right to return. And those two things never happen. And so my hope is by shining a light of black people in this particular way that you see their active responses and how they heard about public housing and how they then shaped that what they heard when they saw that, the way they gravitated or didn't to those policies. And also to say that, you know, I often refer to Spider-Man, I'm a big comic book fan, and so Uncle Ben tells Spider-Man when he finds out that he has these superpowers that with much power comes much responsibility. And so when you call people city makers, right, so I say black city makers, there are Asian city makers, white city makers, Puerto Rican city makers, you know, Dominican city makers. There are city makers of all ilks and brands. But the point about the city maker concept is it's not just valorizing people, but also charging them with accountability, right? So if you have helped make the city, then you've also helped make these problems. And so that's also to get at this narrative that everything that is happening to black people begins and end with what white people are doing to them, when in fact it is much more complicated than that. Yes, white domination is almost always already present, but it is happening in contact with other things that matter to black people as well. There's a very famous quote by Zora Neale Hurston, where she basically says, in effect, black people have a thousand and one interests, you know, besides racism. But for whatever reason, we only focus on that one interest.
0: Was there some point in the in your history here that um, that the African-American community realized, hey, we can have some political clout here and then started to kind of flex their political
1: clout? Oh, definitely. So what you see, uh, which I think is really amplified very well in the awesome film Selma that just recently uh, came out last year, where you get the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Right after 1965, across urban America, especially in places like Philadelphia, you see black electoral politics gain a lot of steam. So we see black mayor Richard Hatcher being the first one in 1966 in Gary, Indiana, all the way to Wilson Good in 1983 in Philadelphia, that there's a steady increase. So it starts at, you know, ward leader, magistrate, judge, you know. Then it becomes city council, state representative Hardy Williams. You know, you start to get all of these movements towards politics, and political scientists often refer to that from protest to politics movement. So we see that in a post 1965 era, this move from pure protest to politics. We need brown faces in high places. This is part of what we need, and we see an active effort to do that, so much so that, you know, by the time we get to the late 80s, the head of the city council is a black person. The mayor is black. You know, the city manager is black. You know, we start to see black people at all of these different levels, and what the argument of the book says is that we don't automatically see all of these changes we would think would happen, and it's because the problems and possibilities of cities are are more than just uh, something that can be fixed with the panacea of a brown face in a high place. Before we run out of time, you mentioned Alice Lipscomb. Yes. Can you talk about her a little bit? Yes, she is the mighty, mighty mighty heroine, I would say, of the actual book, Um, and it just happened. You know, I was uh, not old enough in some ways to have an appreciation for her. She passed away in 2003, and so in 2003 I graduated from college, and so I was old enough. I'm sure in my life I've met her in some way, but not any way that I remember it. So when I found her in the research, she just was so important and just like so many other black women you know one of the other subtitles i use for the book when i give talks on it is how black women changed urban america like alice lipscomb where basically what happens is in the 1950s she is walking down the street in the black 7th ward the hawthorne neighborhood and she there's a fire much like the fire that we see in a tenement collapse that kills the speece family she just you know because she hears screams and she just runs inside She runs inside, finds this young girl and brings her outside and is trying to give her, you know, mouth to mouth and trying to give her CPR and bring her back. And as she's dying, you know, the police are coming over trying to help her and give her some attention. She stands back and the girl looks up at her and says, Aunt Alice. And she realizes this is her niece, that she has run out of this building and her niece dies in front of her. And she says from that moment on, she decided she was going to dedicate her life to making sure that never happened to anybody else again. And she did a mighty job. I mean, in 1950 to 1972, the city had targeted South Street and Lombard Street to become the sites of a six lane highway, you know, and it did not happen because she did not give up. You know, the Hawthorne neighborhood, though, no longer 98 percent black, but instead more like 20 percent or below black is really a part of her legacy. She left that here for us. You know, there would be no black 7th Ward remaining if she had not fought that really good fight, along with a lot of other help from other people. But she, I think, is just really a reflection of the fact that people like her, you know, people like uh, Miss Gatrow, Dorothy Gattrall out in Chicago, you know, people who really are these black women who are mothers. Who see these places as home spaces. What happens to my children if it's gone? What happens to my life if this place goes? That a neighborhood is more than just bricks and mortar, that it is a place where people live, where people find love, where people, you know, have fights, have parties, have black parties, that all of those things make it really resonant. And so I say all that to say that she is one of these, you know, unsung heroes of urban development, She's one of these unsung heroes of black history, you know, both largely across the nation, but also in Philadelphia, that without people like her, black, strong, smart, savvy, unafraid, brave women, we wouldn't have had that neighborhood, even if we see it now disappearing. Well,
0: how did she go from just being this ordinary,
1: ordinary woman walking down the street in front of a Mm -hmm. house that had a fire to being... An influential force. Right. So part of what it was is that, I mean, she was also, you know, it's when people are self-taught politicians in some ways that she, when they decided they were going to build the Crosstown Expressway, she decided, hey, you know, us alone are not enough. But I found out the white residents in the Grace Ferry neighborhood have no idea this is happening. She went door to door you know, through Grace Ferry, a very racially antagonistic neighborhood, this black lady with her jerry curls, she knocking on every door saying, do you know that they're going to build a road that will sever your neighborhood? Do you know that this is going to happen? Do you know? And they said, no, we don't know. And they signed on her petitions door to door. So, I mean, she literally just hit the streets, you know, beat it with her feet, just going door to door, making everyone aware. And I think it was just, you know, that whole keeping it simple, you know, she just kept it simple that you live here, you like your neighborhood, we won't be able to live here if they build a roadway. And she took that as far as she could go. She said, you know, it will be a carbon monoxide curtain. Do you want that for your children playing outside? Do you want a wall separating them from City Hall where you can't even see the other side of the city from your neighborhood? And most all people said, no, we don't want that. So she just really, uh, I would say, you know, took simple strategies of resistance to the street and tried to get as loud of a voice out there. And so she really just went door to door with her mission.
0: Can you talk about the Crosstown Expressway a little bit more? Because you have a picture in the book yeah. of a big highway sign that says Crosstown Expressway yes. this way, but the highway did not exist when yes. they put the sign up and was never built. Mm-hmm. But uh, can you talk about that? Because that's a, a whole chapter in your yeah. book. Yeah.
1: I would say, I mean, that picture for me was, as they say, worth 1,000 words. I would say worth 10,000 words because. That is put up in 1972. The initial plans for the highway really began roughly around 1947 and the Philadelphia Plan really prominently formalized in 1950. So we're talking about almost 25 years of this road being on the books. And what I do in a chapter is detail it by mayoral administration. So what did Richardson Dilworth do? What did James Tate do? What did Joseph Clark do? And each time they pursued it and they dropped it. They pursued it and they dropped it until at some point where James Tate is supposed to be completely off the books. What happens is Frank Rizzo comes in and he decides y'all just didn't do it right and he's going to bring it back resuscitate it and call it the South Bridge plan and he tries it again you know and tries to say it will be a depressed highway put it underground and Alice then takes back to her protest her and George Dukes they go back out they have meetings downtown they walk from 18th and Walnut basically right near where we're sitting now all the way to City Hall with the Hawthorne plan with community action plans with all of the letters from previous mayors of why this was gone and People from the administration, like Robert Mitchell, who was the original designer of the roadway, saying this is not a good look for the city. They bring all of this, and he says, well, this is good for the city. And before you know it, there is an actual sign put up on 95 that says 695, the Crosstown Expressway. And why that sign, I think, is important is because what it reveals is you don't even have to build something to destroy something right? That if you say a road is going to happen and you put a sign up, even if there is no road, it sends messages to businesses, to residents, to homeowners that you may as well put any more money into this neighborhood because the city is going to take it. And that specter of being taken really happened a lot. And I think the sign is a real uh, emphatic exclamation point on the fact that Alice was not paranoid, right? So one could say, why is she fighting this thing for 25 years when people keep saying it's not going to happen? I mean, a road It's very easy to figure out if it's going to happen. You see it being built or you don't. So you don't see it being built. Alice, just go to sleep and find a new job. Right. But instead, what you see is then in 72, Rizzo puts a sign up. This thing has never died. It is never going to die until I make it die. So I think it just is a, a, a larger reflection. One of the lack of listening to across mayoral administrations of this one woman and the residents she represents and two i would also say it is not by accident that it was frank rizzo and it was a black neighborhood that would be you know dramatically impacted given his history as the mayor of the city with his racially antagonistic and i think i'm being generous describing it that way approach to running the city
0: i want to read you what you wrote about frank rizzo or you actually quote Thatcher longstreth Um, Rizzo was a, you say, Rizzo was a racially motivated leader who now, in the estimation of Republican City Councilman Thatcher Longstreth, campaigned on the message of, quote, stopping the black people who represent the crime in the streets and the problems of the school system and whatever else is bad about Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking back on Frank Mm -hmm. Rizzo and his administration, there's still an antagonism there?
1: I would say that, you know, I walk away from all of the mayors that I I discuss in a book, which is basically every mayor from 1900 until 2010, that they are all more complicated than what our existing you know, narratives about them are. So he was very racially charged and very, very racially motivated, and that began in his reign as a police officer, a police commissioner, and then later mayor. But what we don't know, and something that didn't make it into the book, but I think is very important and worth talking about now, is that he tries to stage a third attempt at being mayor. You know, he tries to get a third term. And when he tries to do that, one would imagine, well, he was so horrible to black people that they probably couldn't wait for him to be gone and no black person was going to vote for him. Well, according to both the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Tribune, during that third attempt, he has secret meetings with a series of black established leadership, closed door meetings where many of them try to make power sharing arrangements to support his campaign which is totally antithetical to a contemporary narrative we have about Frank Rizzo. And it's just to say politics are complicated, right? And one's political, you know, efforts and approach are always more complicated than just the sheer narrative of the fact that he was very racially antagonistic. I would also say that I think one of the biggest things about Frank Rizzo that I think we still have today is what you hear him say or what you hear uh, Thatcher say about him, you could take his name away from it and imagine many other people still think that today. So part of what I think he's responsible for is cementing a narrative about black people and black Philadelphians in particular that has been very difficult to shake right, that the problems of Philadelphia are because black people did them, right, even though they were actually not the majority population until about two years ago, but they are the responsibility for all of the problems. All the good stuff are white residents in neighborhoods like Bella Vista, you know, uh, uh, Queen Village, Northeast Philadelphia, all the bad stuff you see when you come visit, oh, that's because of North Philadelphia, you know, parts of the black bottom and West Philadelphia, not the white neighborhoods, but in fact, it's more complicated than that. And I think he is very responsible for keeping a narrative that is very problematic and I think not at all fruitful for moving forward as a city politically, moving on as a people, you know, generally, when you make and further underscore this pathological notion about what black people do, what they're about. Black people are not just criminals and You know, I would say, you know, black people run the gamut just as white people do. White people are criminals and doctors and lawyers. Black people are criminals and doctors and lawyers. But according to, you know, the Rizzo administration, we only hear them as problems. And I think, you know, when you're ruling something, it seems like politically expedient to say these things because it hits home on your voting base. But what you leave behind, I think, is a narrative that in many ways handicaps us from moving forward in our full earnest the way we need to.
0: You've lived in uh, New York and Chicago Mm -hmm. and Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. any other major cities?
1: Uh, I lived in New Haven, Connecticut for three years, Um, and I think I lived in East Orange, New Jersey. Can you Uh, compare race relations in Philadelphia with race relations
0: in any of those other cities?
1: Yes. I, I often say that when people ask me about Philadelphia and they say, well, you know, it seems like you're saying race matters a lot in Philadelphia, and I say because... Are, Philadelphia is an example of a city where black and white are still what matter. You know, even when we think about black and white people, black and white responses, that the city is still cut along that racial binary and is really emblematic of places like Baltimore, Memphis, Tennessee, New Orleans, Atlanta, Georgia, where you still have these other ethnic populations who are there. But they're, the city is dominated not only by black and white populations, but the history they've shared as people cohabiting in the same city. And so for me, when I think about Philadelphia, like I said, one major difference is that you have these you know, checkerboard uh, residential patterns, which are different from Chicago. Chicago, I think, is just like geographies. So the south side of Chicago is a black region. The west side of Chicago is a black region. The north side of Chicago is a white region. You know, the near west side is a white region. So it's just to say there are these regional geographies of a place like that. In New York, you often have what I feel are more famous cultural locations like Harlem, right, really cemented in the literature and in popular culture as this site of blackness. You know, Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, Flatbush, they all have these monikers of blackness that I think Philadelphia doesn't always have the same way. People don't, and I was trying to, in the book, really elevate the Black Seventh War to, in many ways, not only the same level as Harlem, but I would say as the predecessor to Harlem. It's older than that place and was up to the same stuff that we find Langston Hughes and Zora Muir Hurston and County Cullen and all these other folks up to. The Black Seventh War had their own people like that. And so part of what I think Philadelphia really does is, one, bring attention to cities that share those same kind of histories and racial dynamics, where the city is still neatly defined or divided by white and black populations and then two neatly defined in some ways by the racial colonial history right so philadelphia is a colonial city is in many ways america's first city if we want to be very specific and was the original nation's capital and for me it is odd then that we don't spend enough time thinking about how patterns that happen in this place actually spill out and also helpful for thinking about patterns elsewhere you referred earlier to what your second book is about Mm -hmm. what is it about So my next book, which I'm writing with Professor Xandria Robinson at the University of Memphis, who's the author of This Ain't Chicago, um, it's called Chocolate Cities. And so what we're doing in that book is to really think about the U.S. map in broader terms. So right now what we have when we look at the U.S. map, both physically and also by census, are traditional designations of north, south, east, west, mid-south, southwest, northwest. And instead what we're doing is developing what we call the Black Map, which is a map that more specifically fits the way black people have seen the U.S and move through it over time. So instead of thinking about, you know, north, south, east, and west, we borrow from Malcolm X's provocation in his 1964 speech, the Ballot or the Bullet, where he says everything below Canada is the south. I don't want to hear about the South anymore. If you're below Canada, you're in the South. And so now we think about the black map as up South, down South, deep South, out South, West South, mid South. And we're really visiting those as a way to really talk about urban black life over the 20th century and how, if there is no such thing as the North and it's just an imagination, how can we then understand where black people have found themselves? Because in fact, the South has been wherever they are.
0: We have to stop now because we're out of time. We've been speaking with Marcus Anthony Hunter. He is the author of this book, Black City Makers. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was awesome. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.